The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. If you'd like to find out more about us and how we strive to be a gospel-centered, city-focused church community, visit us at missioday.org. All right, let's dig right in this morning uh, in a topic that I am way, I think I'm way too excited to talk about. I think it's something that I should uh, be a little bit more uh, hesitant. I've been prayed up. I'm confident uh, in uh, what the Lord has taught me throughout this week, which has led to a significant amount of repentance. You'll understand as we start talking. We're going to talk about marriage this morning, right? Marriage from Ephesians chapter number five. And so what I did as an introduction was I wrote out all these emotions that get stirred up the instant you talk about marriage. Then I thought to myself, like, I'm pretty long-winded as it is, and if I say the word marriage, you already are well aware of what those emotions are, so I didn't need to spend my time telling you what they were. But marriage stirs up a lot of good emotions for some, a lot of terrible emotions for those that are trapped in abusive and oppressive relationships or those that have endured uh, difficult marriages as a child and saw their lives uh, unraveled by divorce. I mean, I I know that inside of this comes a lot of of baggage, both uh, relationally, uh, politically, all of that. And so I I wanna be cautious Uh, And because of that emotional instability and volatility that a topic like this brings, uh, I wanna read the text, I wanna read it slowly, and then I wanna pray and ask the Holy Spirit to kind of guide our dialogue and discussion so that we cannot get sidelined by our emotional attachment to an idea of marriage, but we can truly understand what the scripture is trying to teach us uh, from Ephesians chapter number five this morning. So let's read, and then we'll... Pray for the Holy Spirit to guide us and then we'll um, uh, dig into the text this morning. Ephesians chapter number five, verse 22. We'll read this. It says this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Father, I uh, bow before you humbly, um, understanding um, just the raw emotions that come with discussing a topic like that. I pray that you would um, hinder those emotions and help us to think deeply and introspectively about the truths of your word 
this morning. Amen. All right, first I wanna just talk a little bit about, uh, a little bit of a review and provide a little bit of context for where this portion of scripture that we just read enters the story of Ephesians, right? And so we've said it over and over and over again, so we won't say it in depth, but the first half of Ephesians, the first three chapters, uh, we called that series the, The Makings, was all about our identity in Christ, who we are, what we believe, right? Um, and then the second half, the last three chapters, is all about our activity in Christ. Because of what we believe, how do we behave, right? And so we've explored what it means that we are a new creation, uh, united to a new community through the finished work of Christ. And now we're just diving into the last half of Ephesians and understanding how that plays out in real life, right? And so the first chapter and a half, he gave us some, some kind of high-level things. Remember we talked about how uh, 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 truthfulness replaces falsehood and we should live truthful lives. And then we talked about how uh, old things should be put off and new things. We talked about new life brings new behaviors. We talked about how uh, uh, wisdom replaces foolishness. And this text has been rich with a lot of gospel truth. And now here in the second half of the second half of the book of Ephesians, Paul really turns his attention to how who we are in Christ, our identity in him, who we are inside of this new community and with all these new behaviors that he's replaced for us with our bad old behaviors plays out like on the real, in real life, in relationships. And so it gives us three relationships uh, that, that, that are, uh, we'll unpack the next three weeks, including this week. But interestingly, we find this, these three relationship explanations or dialogues or exhortations that Paul gives us in the middle between the command to be filled with the Holy Spirit of Ephesians 5.18, right? That was last week. Hopefully we're, we're still dialoguing and digesting that information. Be filled with the Holy Spirit then Paul gives us three relationship examples, husband, wife, child, parent, employer, employee. All right, the language in the text is master, slave, but we get the idea, okay? So it gives us those three, following be filled with the Holy Spirit, but before spiritual warfare of Ephesians chapter number six, right? And so there's some interesting things that I think we can take away from this. Uh, both the context of the placement of this text in, in Ephesians and also the content of this text this morning in Ephesians. And so the first one is this, is this, that the spirit-filled life is not solely understood by our personal morality or our personal spiritual experience, but in how we conduct ourselves and our lives with other people. Right, be filled with the Spirit, then instruction on how to be a husband and wife, how to be a parent, how to be a child, how to be a good employer or a good employee. Because see, we aren't created, we aren't intended to approach the Christian life alone and sandwiching it between be filled with the Spirit and then uh, the spiritual warfare of Ephesians 6 where it says we do not wrestle between flesh and blood but spiritual forces of evil. I think Paul is trying to teach us that isolation outside of relationships that build us up into the gospel leaves us vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. And we're gonna spend the next several weeks really unpacking that truth, Right? We also take away from this text and its placement in this text is that marriage is the first institution created by God for the good of his people and for the advancement of his kingdom. 
And so as we engage in a conversation about marriage today, it's vitally important for us to understand that this just isn't a message for somebody that's married, either a husband or a wife. Although it will seem like the practical nature of it speaks directly to them. But there's something cosmic happening when uh, God unites a husband and a wife together that's, that's declaring and displaying and revealing a bigger story, a bigger plan, and that is the beautiful, redemptive plan of Christ. So if we're here and we're single, we need to understand marriage the way God intended marriage to be understood so that we can understand the kingdom, right? As married people, we need to understand marriage so that we can live faithfully inside of our marriage, but also so that we have an insight into what it looks like to live as part of the kingdom of God. And so marriage is crucial to our understanding of God, how he relates to his church and the work that he's up to in the world around us. Does that make sense? All right, so the first thing I wanna say is this in summary. Marriage, and I'm gonna recap in a, a cuter way all of what I just said. Marriage is foundational for our comprehension of God's kingdom and implementation of God's plan within that kingdom, all right? Marriage is foundational for our comprehension of God's kingdom and implementation within God's kingdom. As we'll, we'll seek to understand and discover, we'll see that marriage displays the goodness of God and is the practical unfolding of his beautiful redemption plan of redeeming a people for himself and renewing all things through Christ. Marriage puts that on display better than anything in the world that he's given us to display that. So it's a hugely important what we're learning into. Paul in verse 32 calls marriage a great mystery. It is a mystery because of the fact that it supernaturally displays the mystery of the gospel that we already dialogued about in Ephesians 3. Remember he called the, mis the gospel a mystery because it was taking people that were dead and bringing them to life, taking people that were far and bringing them in, right? And so uh, then and only then does a language like wives submit to your husband and husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church, make any sense, right? Because as soon as we hear words like submit and love your wife as Christ loved the church, we automatically check out and think, that's impossible, right? There's no earthly way that I could submit as the church submits to Christ as a wife uh, and still uh, keep intact my identity, my feelings, my gifting, my individuality, and there's no way that I can as a husband perfectly love my wife. And if you're understanding that and that's you saying those things even as you heard the text read and, and as we're talking, like you're in good company because I am more aware almost 11 years into my marriage that I don't have the ability to love my wife as Christ loved the church. And I, I, I've learned too that she doesn't have the ability to submit to me as the Christ, uh, as the church submits to Christ perfectly. Right, and so the timing of how Paul interjects this into our text is crucial because he's saying, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Wives, submit to your husbands as, Christ, as the church submits to Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. All of which is extremely impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we must understand that. As we work through this text, there's two main things I want us to see and we'll spend some time dialoguing about them and unpacking them. Uh, this uh, sermon can be intimidating um, for the purpose of every time I've heard this text preach, 
it was extremely abused. The way that it was abused uh, is they would spend, you know, there's two sentences about wives submitting to their husband, or husbands, and then there's like eight sentences about husbands loving their wife uh, as Christ loved the church, right? And so most sermons I've heard were like 35 minutes of wives submit to your husband and all the way that plays out, which looked more like domination and control and power surges uh, than it did look anything like mutual, humble, open submission, right? And then at the end of that sermon, at the end of that 35 minutes, we would tack on, and husbands, you should be willing to die for your wife, which is, which is true, right? That's not at all at the heart of what Paul's saying here. And so as we dig into this, we're gonna notice that we're gonna spend a lot more time uh, beating up us as husbands than we are uh, correcting women on the way that they submit. All right, but I think, I think it builds into the wife's submission because if she feels loved, cared for, respected, she has every desire to submit to you as the leader of your home, right? And so let's dig into that a little bit. But first, I wanna start. I didn't wanna start here, but who am I to correct Paul? This is where Paul starts, so this is where we'll start. I much rather wanted to start talking to the husbands and then recap a little bit with the wives, but we're gonna dig in uh, to the first part of this text. Ephesians chapter number five, verse 22 through 24, we see that wifely submission displays the submission of Christ, right? Wifely submission displays the submission of Christ. Christ has, Christ has equality within the Godhead. Within Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he has and finds equality. He's equally as God, as much God as God the Father is. He's equally as God, uh, as much God as God the Holy Spirit is. There's no difference in their equality. God and Jesus have equality within the Godhead. Yet, we see many times throughout Scripture where Jesus and the Apostle Paul spoke of Christ's submission to the Father giving God the headship over him, all right? One of those examples is 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, three, and there's many more. This is the one I chose to kind of help us understand what it is that Paul's trying to say here in Ephesians chapter five. He says this, he says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and we're okay with that, like that makes sense to us. The head of a wife is her husband. We kind of pull back from that, right? That doesn't, that's where we get off the train, like, oh, I don't know about that and then the head of Christ is God, right? And so I want us to understand that this is, uh, the act of submission is a Christ-like act. This did not rob Jesus of his equality, of his value, of his gifting, of his purpose for coming and walking with humanity. He still accomplished the Father's plan. He still was exalted. He still had power, authority. Another text tells us that with his authority that he had, he laid down his life, submitting to the eternal plan of the Father. And so when we understand submission, we need to understand and view it inside of that context. It's not a demeaning thing, it's a powerful thing, right? And so let's understand it. But I don't wanna, I don't wanna waste away submission as if like give you the, you know, the, the backdoor answer of like, you know, well, Paul's really not saying submit to your husbands as the head. No, that's exactly what he's saying, but there's so much beautiful uh, and richness found within it, and we'll seek to discover that as we move along. Again, this does not rob God of his equality, did not take away from his value or his purpose. Jesus willingly submitted to the plan of God 
accomplishing the purpose of God so that the people of God could ultimately have peace with God, right? Without Jesus submitting to the Father's plan, like we don't have redemption, right? It was a, a, an absolute vital and necessary part of God's beautiful plan. And it's in this way, it's in this way that God, uh, through Paul, instructs wives to submit to their husbands, right? They're both, submission and love are both exuberant expressions of Jesus, right? They're both exuberant expressions of Jesus. One's not Jesus and one's not submitting. Both of them are Jesus roles. Kathy Keller says it like this in her book, The Meaning of Marriage. It says, both women and men get to play the Jesus role in marriage. Jesus in his sacrificial authority and Jesus in his sacrificial submission, right? And so she's introducing this idea. I wanna, I wanna hear from another lady that, that really unpacks what that means. And so in an article that she cited, Kathy and Luma Sims, who writes for uh, Desiring God as a, as a law student that has four kids and lives out on the West Coast, uh, she wrote this to help us understand a little bit more about what it means to have Jesus roles in marriage and why uh, that, that is that way. She says, as a woman, I already have a Jesus role. The sacrificial gifting of my submission to my husband. I love the way she words it. The sacrificial gifting of my submission to my husband. Then she asks a question. Should I try to grasp for his Jesus role? Should I try to swap my Jesus role for his Jesus role? Then she says, to what end? If Jesus, being equal with God, did not grasp for his equality, but instead submitted himself to the plan and the will of the Father, should I, as my husband's equal, grasp for mine? How can that possibly transform me into the image of Christ? Right, she's saying we both have equal Jesus roles, the expression of how those Jesus roles get played out just look differently. So it's not a better than, it's not a less than, it's not a less gifted, a less valuable member of society, it's not a less anything. It's God uniquely wired you and gave you submission as a beautiful gift, not to be dominated over, not to be uh, 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 forcibly taken from you, but for you like Jesus laid down his life in submission to the Father's plan to lay that down because of God's plan for husbands to have headship and leadership over their wives. So let's take a brief look at what submission is. We'll do this by primarily looking at what it is not, all right? First thing, submission isn't blind allegiance that is agreeable with everything, right? It's not just a, a yes woman who every, uh, that, that meets the demands and whims of their husband as they have those demands and whims come to their mind. That's not what submission is. Submission isn't placing your husband's authority over Christ's authority. So if your husband is misleading you to sinfulness, you have all the right in the world to reject his authority and follow Christ's authority, right? And there's other ways that plays out as well. And we'll unpack a little bit more of this this week in a follow-up video that will dive into some of these topics that I just don't have the time to dive into with a lot of time. Second, the third thing, submission isn't forfeiting 
your intellectual abilities, your giftings, right? It's not a laying down of the things that God wired and uniquely created you to do, right? We'll learn later that husbands should be stirring those up, equipping you, encouraging you in those. Submission isn't a call to submit to all men, right? It's a call to submit to your husband, right? So it doesn't place anybody that's not my wife under my headship. Does that make sense? Like you are the leader of your wife, not womankind as a whole, all right? Some people think that. Then submission isn't living in fear of your husband the way that we naturally understand the word fear, right? If you're fearful of your husband and his leadership, you're in an abusive relationship and you need to get help, right? The way we understand fear. But the Bible does use the word fear to display what respect all reverence, respect looks like. And we'll dive into that in just a little bit, all right? And so what submission is, submission is not all these things, submission is respecting the position given to your husband, not of his own merit, not because he's, he's an all-star husband, but because it was given to him in the providence of God, placing you under his care for your, your uh, encouragement, for your flourishing, for your advancement. And then walking this out as Christ has submitted to the Father and as Christ calls the church to submit to him, all right? And so uh, let, me, let me help you, let me help you women articulate something that maybe your husband has been unable to articulate, or maybe he has. And maybe I'm just gonna add to what he's already telling you. Men, and my friend Cody here can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, he's been, their family has been a, a great so prayer support, financial support from Missio and Missio West was a conception. And so I'm grief, grateful for them. Men, primarily, I'm speaking for myself and I think I'm speaking for most of you, feel love through respect, right? When I'm respected, when my gifts are valued, when I'm needed, when I uh, am uh, equipped, when I'm I need affirmation, not in an unhealthy way where it's like I'm living for that, but in a way that I feel love when, Tiff when I know Tiffany respects me as a man, right? I feel loved, I feel cared for, I built, feel built up, I feel encouraged. And my guess is most of your husbands or most of your future husbands will feel and understand love in the exact same way. They'll feel loved by the amount of respect that you give them, show them, and communicate to them, all right? Wives, build your men up, right? If, 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 if them feeling love is equated to them feeling respected, build them up, get behind them, respect him, be his number one fan, not because he's perfect, not because he's, he's, he's a model husband. He may be the worst husband known to mankind, but God in his providence has given you as a positional leader in your home and part of your submission to him, is, and then later as Paul talks about, is to respect him and in respecting him, you're building him up. You're increasing his ability. A lot of times, and I'm dialoguing with marriages, like the husband does not arise to the occasion of being a great husband because he feels beat down and tore down. He hasn't heard a positive thing from his wife in years, but he's heard every negative, right? He's heard every time he forgot to take the trash out. 
He heard every time uh, the, the, the sink was leaking. All right, and we'll get to men later. I'm not getting you off the hook, trust me. And I'm, I'm the worst at this. But he's not heard anything positive in so long. He feels built down. He's not, he's not encouraged and built up to lead and lead the home the way Christ wants. All he hears is complaints about how he's not doing that. But he's not being encouraged to do that. He's not given space to do that. Right? Women, you have the power to encourage your husband like no one else does. Like no one else does. But with that comes incredible responsibility because you have the power to discourage your husband unlike anybody else does, right? I know that's true in my life. 10 people can tell me the exact same thing. If Tiffany's saying something different than that, I'm going with Tiffany, right? And so if, if 10 people are building me up and Tiffany's tearing me down, which she doesn't do on the regular, don't get that idea. If Tiffany's tearing me down, I'm gonna feel tore down. If 10 people are tearing me down but Tiffany's building me up, my overwhelming emotion is I'm gonna feel built up, and to feel loved and cared for, respected and valued. When we know our wives are behind us, are for us, and are cheering us on, we can walk out into the world and face anything. It's like that Superman mentality, like I've been so built up, I can walk through walls, I can do wonders, I can do whatever it is that I need to do, right? That's how we feel, and that's how we face life in those instances, Women, we'll close your section of the conversation. Hopefully it doesn't end there. Hopefully you're still thinking and churning and convicted by whatever this text is speaking to you this morning. But question is this. Is your ideal of marriage rooted in some attempt at socially constructing an understanding of marriage absent of the gospel? Have you heard, have you read, have you ingested non-gospel-centered marriage material to the point where that becomes your idea, your mirage, your paradise of what a good marriage looks like? Or is it rooted in the gospel? We'll spend more time unpacking that as well. All right, moving on. I'm out of the woods for the hard part. Now it's on to the men. I feel good about talking to you guys. and uh, I don't wanna beat you up too bad. I hope you feel built up in the love of Christ as a result of this. Let's see this, in verse 25 through 30, we see that husbandly love displays the love of Christ. Husbandly love displays the love of Christ, All right? Jesus loves his church and he delights in its presence. Jesus loves his church and delights in his presence. This should be the posture of husbands towards their wives. Remember, this is completely absent of possibility aside from the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll understand this through our text in three different ways. The first is this, Jesus loves his church with a sacrificial love. Jesus loves his church with a sacrificial love. We see that in verse 25. And so practically in the context of marriage, this looks like the laying down of your life as a husband for the good and building up of your wife. Right? Let's get more practical. All right, for some of us in here, and I, I get that this isn't gonna be all inclusive. Some of you are gonna be thinking completely opposite, right? For some of us in here, myself, maybe a few others that I know enjoy this game, golf is synonymous with paradise. 
right? I love it. Ate up with it, enjoy it. Spent a lot of time looking through magazines. I watch golf even when like Tiger Woods and Bubba Watson and the big guys aren't playing. I, I, got, I got issues, I understand that, <laughs> right? That feels synonymous with paradise. Or in, input anything you love, right? Fishing, hunting, woodworking, baking, uh, working. Some of you love work, right? I get it. Put whatever you look in there as paradise. Some of us tie these things synonymously with paradise, uh, uh, heaven on earth, if you will. Golf for me is that, right? For you, it may be sports, it may be something completely different. Fill in whatever, right? But uh, like the entrance uh, to a Macy's store for some of us is synonymous with the eternal torments of hell, right? <laughs> like we love the paradise of a golf course and we hate the torture of a department store. Like I like shopping, but Target is right there for me, right? I know you ladies love Target and Tiffany like does her Target and Walmart stuff, but like for me, I hate it. I don't mind shopping. Like I feel like I'm pretty in tune with, with the fashion trends of, of both women and men and it's fun to dialogue and shop with my wife sometimes, but like sometimes Target for me is like the worst, right? And so we equate, we equate paradise with what we like and we equate hell with what we don't like, right? And, and essentially insert anything that you do enjoy or anything that you don't enjoy to make it applicable to you. But I want us to understand this. Sacrificial love will forsake what seems like paradise for what seems like hell because of the value and interest it has in spending time with the one it loves, right? Let me say that again. Sacrificial love will forsake what seems like paradise for what seems like hell because of the value and interest it has in spending time with the one it loves. Isn't this what Jesus did? He left the paradise of heaven to come to endure the hell-ish punishment as a result of our sin so that we could eternally be his. Like Jesus had all authority in the world and he used his authority to die to the very thing that separated us from him. And so if we as husbands are gonna love our wives as Christ loves the church, we're inevitably called to use the authority that we've been given in God's design to die to anything that dares come before our spouses, right? The thing that came between Jesus and us was our sin and Jesus took our sin that separated us from him on himself, absorbing our punishment so that we could be his and so that we could eternally in this life and in heaven spend time with him, right? Okay, you say, I, I don't like golf and I love shopping. That's not a heaven and a hell comparison for me. I enjoy shopping. Macy doesn't bother me. Like I said, Target kind of gets on my bad side, but the value of spending time with Tiffany will take me shopping wherever she wants to go shopping, right? Much like she used to go play golf with me regularly because she wanted to spend time with me, right? Same, same concept. Some of you don't connect to that application and that doesn't really hit me very hard in my heart. Here's what does, right? Uh, 
for me a leaky faucet or a sink that isn't working means absolutely nothing, right? It's like, I don't care, we got one other sink, we got a bathroom sink, we got a sink in the basement, like we're, we're, uh, uh, we're creative, like we'll use other sinks, we don't have to have this one. But for a woman who takes great care to provide a beautiful home that feels like a palace for her, that leaky sink is a nightmare, right? And so not fixing that hurts her deeply, right? It doesn't feel cared for. It doesn't feel valued. It doesn't feel loved. Now, I, like I said, I love walking into Macy's. I love antique shop and all that. Where I fall short is this, because we lived with a sink that did not work. Not a leaky faucet. Like, Tiffany couldn't use one side of her sink for like six years, right? And for me, it was like, well, you got, you got the other side. Like, just use the other side. Sacrificial love, sacrificial love serves the needs of the other because they're equally, they equally, they, they more value her needs being met than your conscience being satisfied, right? It doesn't bother me that the sink's leaking, it bothers her, so it should bother me because sacrificial love compels me to serve my wife in meeting her needs whether I view them as a need or not. Does that make sense? That one hit home a little bit better? Did for me. What things do you sacrifice that you enjoy solely for things that your wife enjoys or needs, right? What, what space in your schedule can you be intentional with? I'm devoting this time, energy, effort to you. I'm, for, I'm gonna forgo overtime. I'm gonna forgo uh, another round of golf. I'm gonna forgo uh, building this new cabinet that I wanna build. I'm gonna forgo, uh, you know, getting my patio and grill set up the way I want it because I want you to feel loved, valued, cared for. Sacrificial love also causes us to pray for our wives as Christ prays for the church. All throughout scripture we see tons of prayers recorded from Christ on behalf of his church. One of the most beautiful is in John 17 where he prays almost an entire chapter for his church. Then Christ, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, ascended to the Father and sits at the right hand of his Father, making intercession for us all the time. Right? This is a picture of how a husband loves his wife as Christ loves the church. Are you interceding to the Father on behalf of your wife? And does she know that? Right? Are you praying intentionally, deeply for your wife in private, with your wife and over your wife? And we'll explain a little bit more what that means later. Right? It's valuable. It's needed. All right, second thing we see in our text this morning is in verses 26 through 27, we see that Jesus loves his church with a sanctifying love, sanctifying love. Certainly, all of our sanctification is a direct result of the work of Christ in us, right? We get that. Nevertheless, a primary instrument that God uses in the sanctification of our spouses 
is one another, right? Been married any length of time, you're gonna understand your wife is going to frustrate you, your wife is going to challenge you, there are gonna be difficult times in your marriage, there are gonna be fighting times in your marriage, all of that is for your good and for your growth. As God draws out of you the sin that's in your heart and shows you this new way of life that you've been given because you've been given a new identity, and you've been placed in a new community, and now your relationship marriages look different, right? It's all a work of progressive sanctification accomplished by the Spirit. I get that, but we have a role, right? We have a role. He's equipped us, he's unified us together uniquely. And as God's word and spirit fills us as husbands, we live out the ethics of the kingdom of God in our relationships. As we lead, as we serve, as we pray for, as we adore and love our wives unconditionally, we push our wives closer to Jesus and deeper dependence on Jesus, culminating in her growth and ultimately her looking more like Jesus, right? And so I, these are the short ones because I've got to move on. But I've got one question. It, there's no fill in blanks. I just wanted it on the screen because I wanted you to see it and hear it. And I want you to deeply ponder it. All right, and here's the question. Is your wife a better Christian because of you or in spite of you? Is your wife a better Christian because of you or in spite of you? Let that sit for a second. Third thing, and this wraps up this portion of our text in verse 28 through 33, we see that Jesus loves his church with a satisfying love. The satisfying love. Two people have left what they have previously known and have become one person in a marriage according to verse 31. Husbands are called to then love their wives as they love themselves because the two people have become one flesh, Ephesians tells us. So just as we long to satisfy our own needs as husbands, we are to just as much long to satisfy the needs of our wives. Just as we long for intimacy, joy, security, health, peace, companionship, and community, we should seek to provide those things for our wives as well. Just as we long for respect, admiration, utilization of our gifts, and affirmation that we are doing a good job, we are to give those things to our wives as well. Husbands, how are we doing at nourishing our wives? How are you physically nourishing her? How are you giving her space and helping disciple her to a development and a utilization of her spiritual gifts? Are you cherishing her? Are you encouraging her? Are you complimenting her? Right? If we're gonna love our wives as Christ loves the church, we first have to love our wives as we love ourselves. And that's where some of us draw the line because we feel so defeated by sin, so defeated by shame, so defeated by fear, so defeated by the world that we don't love ourselves. The idea is that Christ loved you so much he died on the cross for you. 
was buried, rose again to unite him to yourself so that you who were dead could now have life. Those of you that were on the outside could now be on the inside. Those of us that were the enemies of God could now belong to the family of God. You're deeply loved, deeply cherished. And in that vein, you are called, demanded, commanded, and equipped through Christ's example and through the power of the Holy Spirit to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Gospel practice is this, and we have zero time to unpack it, and we'll revisit it next week, but it's simple, all right? And we'll spend some time via social media post this week unpacking it a little more in depth, practically how it works itself out. First thing is this, fight against control. This is, these are practical applications for both husbands and wives, right? Fight against control and fight for influence. Fight against control, fight for influence, right? This isn't domination. Your headship does not give you authority that works itself out in domination. Your headship is given you to display and example the kingdom of God and Christ's authority in laying his life down for the benefit of others, right? Fight against control. And I know that's difficult because it's at the fiber of who we are. If we have control, we misuse it. If we don't have control, we do anything in the world to get it. Fight against that in the power of the spirit and fight for influence. I've learned uh, in, in a number of years of pastoral ministry and a number of years of being marriage and being married and now engaging in parenting a child that my tendency is towards control. So I need to fight against that. I need to ask the spirit to reject that in me and build an influence because I wanna be influential. I don't wanna control people. I don't wanna manipulate people. It's exhausting and brings a significant amount of shame and hurt even to our lives and definitely theirs. But influence is golden, right? If I can influence my wife towards good, if I can influence you as church members towards good, if I can influence my child towards good and do that in a loving, humble way, that's a win for me. So fight against control and force some influence and then fight against selfishness and for selflessness, right? This is the age old thing, like we're selfish people, right? And so we view and understand everything through the way we view and understand it. Not ever thinking about how that affects or impacts the other person. And we need to reject that, reject that. Losing yourself is the most joy-filled, beautiful, glorious experience that you can have. When life doesn't revolve and center around you, your marriage gets better, your work relationships get better, your relationships with your children get better, your relationship with your family gets better, your relationships inside the church get better. It's the ultimate display of the gospel. Jesus laying his life down for the benefit of others and we are all called to that in our marriages and, and in all of our relationships, but uniquely intensely intensified in the marriage relationship, right? Okay, so that's it on gospel practice. I wanna close this way. This is another one that I just wanna, hopefully we're thinking about this throughout, throughout the week. Because as we talked about submitting as a husband, we, we initially, we ultimately, almost all of us had pushback, right? Like I would guarantee everybody had pushback to that. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church, and as we unpacked that, there was a, probably pushback inside of your mind and heart against what was being said. 
That's fair. But I want us to understand this. The inability to submit to your husband if you're a wife or unconditionally love your wife if you're a husband isn't rooted in their incompetence. Right? Your inability to love your wife as Christ loved the church or your inability as a wife to submit to your husband is not rooted in their incompetence to lead or in your incompetence of being loved, right? It's not rooted at all in that. It's rooted in your belief that you have an incompetent God who has an incomplete plan. When we understand marriage in the context of Ephesians 5, motivated and empowered by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of our growth, sanctification, love, and care so that we can fight off spiritual oppression and opposition that will inevitably creep into every one of our marriages, we can very quickly equate our disobedience to my husband's not fit to lead. Or we can equate my disobedience of loving my wife to she's not a lovely person. That's not at all. If you understand what's being said today through that lens, you don't understand what Paul's saying and you don't understand the gospel, right? Because God is telling a bigger story than even your marriage. And inside of that story in his perfect and most glorious and beautiful plan, he's given us instructions on exactly what it means to walk as a new creation inside of a new community with new behaviors and new sense of how we interact with one another in relationship. And so our rejection of that is ultimately what we're rejecting. Not because our husband's not good enough, not because our wife's not loving enough, right? It's our belief that our God is incompetent to picture a plan and the plan that he has created is incomplete. And so because it's incomplete, I need to go outside of that and operate for myself, right? All right, let me wrap this up in a positive note. Our marriages have been called from sin and from our sins of selfishness, neglect and abuse back to God's intended design for the purpose of our sanctification in the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel to those who are yet to believe. I see this play out a lot. When I was working, um, outside of the church in, in various roles. I did electrician work for a number of years, worked around a lot of construction guys. My heart is very soft and uh, towards those men. But I remember a lot of water cooler conversations that probably sound like a lot of water cooler conversations or lunchroom conversations or wherever you congregate at your work to talk were people that don't know Jesus and some that did never had a single solid, positive, and encouraging thing to say about their spouse. My heart used to break. Because I can imagine, if this is how they're reflecting their spouse to the world, what in the world is it like to live in that home? The things he's saying to me were atrocious enough. What is he saying to his wife, right? And so a beautiful picture of the gospel is a beautiful marriage that operates in complementary where the wife is 
generously, graciously using her gift of submission and laying it down in a powerful, bold, courageous move to her husband's leadership. And where that same husband, modeled after Christ's love for the church, loves his wife deeply. Man, is an anthem of gospel transformation to our society. You know it. You've engaged in similar conversations. And you fight that urge to jump in on the conversation. Right? I've been there. I was like, yeah, my wife, yeah, I mean, she didn't, you know, she didn't pack my lunch this morning. What the heck? What the heck is wrong with her? Right? Now, don't join in that. Be a declaring gospel anthem of God's goodness in giving you the marriage he's given you for the purpose of your sanctification and for the purpose of his name being made known. If you're in here and you're single, you think, man, this didn't apply to me, it applied to you tremendously. You have the beautiful gift and ability to start right, not fix a mess, right? And so as you're thinking through this thing, I hope you understand God's kingdom better through the context of marriage, but I also hope you understand what it takes to learn to be a submissive person, to learn to be a husband that leads his wife as the church. Spend your time doing that. Spend your time praying for that. Spend your time developing as a human being and as a disciple of Christ as you pray for what God has in the future. Don't get frustrated. Don't feel rejected. Don't feel uh, defeated. Like God in his perfect providence and time will bring you where you are supposed to be. Be ready when you get there so you don't have to fight through the mess that a lot of people have to fight through in their marriage, right? Hopefully it'll be helpful in, in, in prayer for you. I'll pray real quick, invite the band back up, and then I'll lead us through a time of response. Father, thank you for your goodness and your graciousness in helping us understand a difficult text, hopefully in a way that gives life, also brings conviction, but ultimately finds its victory in you, the finished work of the cross, and the power of the spirit that you've left and given us in your providence. Thank you so much for the glorious gift of the Holy Spirit that makes all things possible as you created and intended them to be. Amen.